0: Good morning. I will be reading the sermon text for this morning. It's from 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15:1 through 5. My name is Ryan Elwell. I worship here with my wife Kayla and my two children, uh, Abram Shepherd, or Shep, and Denia. So let's see. That's page 961 in the Bible in front of you. We're reading from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 5. This is God's word. in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. Let's pray. Our great father, we, uh, we just read perhaps the, the most important fact in human history, that your son died for our sins and then he came back from the dead. Uh, we, we worship you because of that. Um, Please, please not only convince us uh, in our minds that this is true, we, we need more than a reminder of a fact. We, we need you to stir our will and our affections for you because of this. So we ask Holy Spirit that you would, you would show us how we can believe in the gospel more deeply uh, as your word is preached to us. Please be with your servant as he preaches, guard his mind and tongue so that he will only say what you would have him to say. And we ask that uh, through the preaching of your word, your church would be strengthened and that your name would be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Good morning. Good to be with you. It's been—I've been up here, but I haven't been up here with this, and so this—this this, this is a unique feeling. It's good to be back. It is an honor to—I'm uh, freshly aware of the honor that it is to have the opportunity to address you from God's word, and freshly thankful for your uh, partnership in the gospel. I love you. I'll tell you at the beginning that I love you. I'll tell you at the end that I love you. Uh, but it is a sweet privilege to be able to bring the word of God to you. Uh, as most of you know, uh, I have been on a sabbatical for a while, and um, uh, during the sabbatical, and, and especially over the past couple of weeks as we've returned, uh, a lot of you have asked me a very understandable question, a difficult question to answer succinctly, and that question is. How was your sabbatical? A lot of people, very understandable that you would want to know. Not so easy to uh, share you know, quickly how the last four months have been. Uh, it was good. Thanks. Thanks for asking. <laughs> um, one of the highlights for our family uh, during this time was that we were able to spend four weeks uh, in Hilton Head, South Carolina. Uh, my dad lives down there, and we go down there often, but we were able, with the sabbatical time, to extend our stay a little while, and um, we, we enjoyed, I don't know that we had found this place uh, in previous trips to Hilton Head, but we, we found, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's like a Wawa-type gas station convenience store, it's called Parker's. Anybody ever been down in the Carolinas and been to a Parker's? No Parker's, okay, but, well, they have really good ice. Parker's has this really good chewy ice. If you know Chick-fil-A ice, they've got that kind of Chick-fil-A-like ice. And you know, my son especially, he doesn't get a lot of different t- treats that he can eat and he really liked the Parker's ice. So we made frequent trips to Parker's for ice. And uh, this, there was, they're, they're all over the island, but this one particular Parker's that we would go to, it was, it was just uh, a couple of blocks away from the Hilton Head Airport. Um, and uh, w- how we came to discover that it was near the Hilton Head Airport is another story. I just, I, I'm, gonna, I'm not here to just tell you stories, so I'll t- I could tell you about that another time. But we, we, it was so close to the airport, and you're seeing these, air, these planes coming down, like so close to us, so low to the ground. So we would go, we would get some chewy ice, and we would just kind of hang out looking for planes uh, to, to, to fly past us, and, and that's how we spent some of our time. And on the last day, I think it was the last day of our trip, the day before we were driving back up here, um, we, were, we were hanging out in front of the Parkers talking, and it was, like, it was weird because it was like we had forgotten what we were there for. We were just talking and ha- eating our ice, and it, it just seemed to happen suddenly. Usually you have some answers, but you could hear the plane coming. It just was on top of us, loud, thundering and it was like, I mean, literally, you're thinking that the plane is about to crash into the gas station is how low it was, And it, it was, and it really took us aback because we just were not prepared for it in that moment. And we're, we're just, we're kind of stunned. We're like, whoa, that was amazing. And this lady uh, was in her uh, car getting ready to pull out of her parking spot. And I think she had the window down, or maybe she put the window down, but she got had a smile on her face. And she was like, you guys aren't from around here, are you? so uh that was that was a good time we had a good time on the sabbatical um i want to talk to you today about the gospel if if as you were walking into uh the sanctuary into the building this morning and one of our neighbors perhaps had asked you hey, what what are you all doing in there every week like what's what do, you, what do you believe? What, what is it that is the message of Christianity? I, I wonder how you would answer that. I, I think it's important for each of us, uh, especially those of us who are members of this church, and I'm not saying that to be exclusive towards those of you who are not members of the church, uh, if you're a Christian and this is the church that you regularly worship in and fellowship in, we'd love for you to become a member of the church. That's another sermon for another time. But I, I say it's especially important for us who are members because as members of the church, we have actually committed to the Lord and to each other to defend and to maintain a gospel ministry in this place. And for us to do that, we need to be very clear in being able to not just understand for ourselves, but be able to articulate what this message is. What is it that we believe? And it is, uh, honestly, it's a little bit of a concern of mine um, in my years here as a pastor. And I don't think this is limited only to our church. It's not a criticism of our church. I think, I know, in fact, that other pastors share this concern, that there are our brothers and sisters among us who are sincerely, who have come to know Jesus. They truly Uh, have been saved, as we've been talking about being saved and the grace of God, and they they believe that and they truly know the Lord. But when asked to explain concisely and clearly the message by which they have been saved, they have a very difficult time uh, explaining it in a way that one of our neighbors around here could hear them communicate it and actually believe themselves and be saved. And I think we really want to make sure that we know this message. So, as, as I'm jumping back into uh, the ministry of the Word here in these first few weeks especially, and with so many of you asking me, how was your sabbatical, what I decided to do was just take four passages of Scripture that have been especially sweet to me, in, in especially important to me in these months. And I don't want to preach my experience. I'm not preaching my sabbatical, okay? I want to preach the text, but I want, I want you to get an update a little bit on what's been going on with me by thinking about these passages of Scripture from God's Word, and I hope they'll be of help to you and encouragement to you as we think about God's Word. And so we're, we're starting here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this passage of Scripture, uh, day two, I'm not exaggerating, literally day two of the sabbatical this passage particularly landed on me, and it occupied much of my attention. It actually occupied much of my family's attention during this time. It, it made a powerful impact on me. Uh, and I, well, I do think it's helpful for us to talk about this so that we are clear as a church there's even a more personal reason uh, about what this passage was doing in me, and I'll, I'll try to share that with you briefly as we look at the passage. Um, As we look at this passage, uh, here's what I want you to take away. Uh, uh, One of the things I've been convicted about my preaching while I've been away is that sometimes I'm not as simple as I could be. Just just, just, just say, amen. I just just kind of, amen. Is he going to be more, I I, I mean, the scriptures do call us to think, but I want to make sure that I'm clear and straightforward. So here's what I really hope that our time together this morning that you will walk away with. The gospel is the good news of salvation in the crucified and risen Christ. And it's the most important matter in your life every single day. That's what I'd like you to take. I'm going to talk about that a little bit more. I hope it will be simple. I'm sure not every part of it will be simple. I'm trying to be simple. The gospel is the good news of salvation in the crucified and risen Christ. And it's the most important matter in your life and mine every single day. How was my sabbatical? Well, it was a season in which that reality was uh, impressed upon my soul, and I hope and pray that it will be impressed upon your soul today. Uh, To help us think about it a little bit more, just have two simple questions uh, that I'd like for us to unpack in our time together. Question number one. What is the gospel? Question number two, how important is the gospel? Very simple. What is the gospel? How important is the gospel? I haven't done this in a while. I may need a little more water than normal. In verse one of this passage, Paul writes to the church in Corinth. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. Uh, The church in Corinth, which Paul himself had been involved in in the formation of a few years prior to his writing this letter, uh, the church in Corinth was what we might call today a little bit of a hot mess. Uh, They were a very gifted church. They were knowledgeable. They they were abundant in spiritual gifts. But if you've ever read through the letter of 1 Corinthians, you know there were many uh, problems going on. Moral problems, doctrinal problems, there was a distressing amount of strife in the church. Factions, some people talking about how they followed Paul and others, they were following Peter and they were battling with each other. Uh, they were boasting in those gifts and they were, they were boasting in human eloquence and they, they were in doing so, they were confusing and they were in danger of undermining uh, the very powerful wisdom of god that had been exhibited to them in the cross of the lord jesus and and one of the doctrinal problems that they were giving themselves to one of the doctrinal errors they were giving themselves to was they were flirting with the idea that there was actually no resurrection from the dead so if you if you have your bible open still in 1 corinthians 15 it says in verse 12 uh th- verse 12 tells us why paul is writing this particular part of first corinthians He says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? They were beginning to say that. They were beginning to believe what their culture around them was saying, that there is no resurrection of the dead. And Paul is saying, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then the Jesus who I proclaim to you isn't risen from the dead. And if he's not risen from the dead, then your faith is in vain. You've believed in vain. You see that in our passage at the end of verse 2. Have you believed in vain? If you don't believe in the resurrection, then you don't believe in a resurrected Christ. And there's nothing to our faith. It's totally worthless. So he's writing this chapter to correct that error. And I would say I was just particularly moved with praise to God as I thought about this. Just this week, I'd never really thought about this before, that God's providential rule over all things even in this this doctrinal confusion and this dabbling with error and this arrogance of the Corinthians, this was God's way of bringing to us a passage of Scripture that has so clarified the meaning of the gospel and the beauty of Christ's resurrection and its implications for us. We would not have this chapter if it was not for the stupidity, I don't think that's an overstatement to use that word, of the Corinthians and their arrogant boastfulness. We wouldn't even have this wonderful chapter. So we can be greatly encouraged and thankful that this passage is here in God's word for us, and it helps us to understand what is the gospel. We see in just these first couple of verses, it's, it's a word, right? It was a word I preached to you, Paul says. It's a, it's a word, it's a message that demands a response, right? He says that they, they had received it. And it's not just to be received one time and then done away with, but you see they're to continue in it. They were to stand in it. They were standing in it. It's a message of good news. The word gospel means good news. And it's good news specifically because it brings about salvation. It's through their receiving of this message and their continuing in this message that they were being saved. And we understand that that salvation has something to do with not getting what we deserve for our sins. Because when Paul goes on in verse three to actually remind them of what he himself had received and then delivered to them, he says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And and, and here's, it's this phrase, Christ died for our sins. That's beautiful. It's the message of first importance, we'll get to that. But I, here's where I think we need extra clarity to make sure that we can understand and articulate this basic message of Christianity. Because to tell someone across the street, right? Someone who just asked you, what is Christianity all about? What do you believe? To tell someone simply that Christ died for your sins is very true, it's very accurate, it's very wonderful but I think it actually lacks enough context for someone to even understand what that means. Now, I said I'm trying to be simple. Please think, please listen to me carefully in this next sentence that I say. It's not too profound for you to understand, but if you don't hear me say this sentence, you're going to not be sure what I'm doing for the next 10 minutes. The issue of sins being died for Assumes that there is a person who rules and is in charge of things and who has made certain commands who we owe allegiance to and we've offended him, we've wronged him and aroused his anger and he's declared his intent to punish those transgressions, those sins. Did you follow what I just said? When we say Christ died for our sins, that's important. That's a vital, essential part of the gospel. But we really cannot make sense of that if we don't first reckon with the person who rules, who has set the terms of agreement, if you will, for the whole universe, who we're in relationship to and we've offended him. We've sinned against him and now we deserve punishment from him. If we don't have that in view I don't think that we or anyone else around us could make sense of what it means to say the words, which are true words, Christ died for your sins. Now, Paul doesn't say it. What I just said, that sentence I told you to listen to, Paul doesn't say that here. He doesn't say anything about God who was in charge, who rules, who we're in relationship. But he does understand all of that, and he unpacks that elsewhere in his writings. For instance, in the letter to the Romans... When Paul talks about how the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe, he goes on to say, in what way is it powerful for salvation? What do we need to be saved from? Paul says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We might say, what do you you mean, Paul, wrath of God for unrighteousness and suppressing the truth? He tells us what he means. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. How has God shown us what's plain about him? For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. People who are made by God are without excuse. They know something of this God that they can perceive from the created world. They can tell there's a creator who's in charge who made all this. They can perceive that, but they're suppressing that truth. They can perceive it just by beholding God's work of creation. And so Paul says, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. He says, he goes on to say a few verses later in Romans 1, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. That's why we need salvation. To understand the meaning of these very precious words christ died for our sins we need to know what sin is which means we need to know something about this blessed god this blessed creator and it's it's put so wonderfully in this little book i have a small number of copies of this at the welcome desk you could take one this is called a gospel primer for christians This is what landed. This is what just providentially the Lord brought this my way. I had had this book for years, but day two of the sabbatical, this was like, I need to make this a priority, and it became a priority. Became a priority for me. It Became a priority for our family. Became a priority for the junior encouragers. Where are the junior encouragers? Do we have junior encouragers here? Yep. Jason Brantley are familiar with it. Judah is familiar with this book. Garrett, James, yes, we all went through. I went through this booklet with with some of the, we'll call them young men young men in our church, and, and, and I don't want to exalt this book. This, this is a little summary of the message of the gospel, full, heavily footnoted with scripture, and it just summarizes the truth of the gospel. And what I love about this book is it doesn't start with Christ dying for our sins. It starts with who God is. Let me tell you a little bit about our God, the God who is, the true and living God. He is immense beyond imagination. He measured the entire universe with merely the span of his hand. He is unimaginably awesome in all of his perfections, absolutely righteous, holy, and just in all of his ways. He has also been unbelievably good and merciful to us as the creator and sustainer of our lives. Every breath, every heartbeat, every function of every organ in our bodies is a gift from him. Every legitimate pleasure that we experience is a gift from his loving hand to us. All that we are and all that we have, we owe to him and to his goodness. Our lives in every way are and will continue to be utterly dependent upon him in whom we live and move and have our being this wonderful god is the most supremely worthy object of admiration honor and delight in all of the universe and he has created us he's created with me he's created you with the intention that we might glorify him that we might honor him by finding our souls delight in him and by living in joyful obedience to him in all of our ways When Paul talks about God, when he says the wrath of God is being revealed, or although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, or when he says that they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, he means all that. And that being who he is, we're prepared then to grasp something of of the outrage that it is in how you and I and every human being have responded to this blessed God, this fountain of goodness and righteousness and kindness that he is. Our, Our brother Milton Vincent continues, again, I don't want to exalt him, but he summarizes well the biblical teaching. He says, yet I could not have failed this great God more miserably than I have. I wonder if you can attest to that yourself. Instead of giving thanks to Him and humbly submitting to His rule over my life, I have rebelled against Him and have actually sought to exalt myself above Him. Going my own way and living according to my own wisdom, I have broken countless times either the letter or the spirit of every one of God's Ten Commandments. Thinking myself to be wise, I have shown myself to be a fool. And because of my arrogance, God has every right to damn me to the everlasting experience of his terrifying wrath in the lake of fire. So, as for myself, apart from Christ, I am bound, I'm enslaved, I'm captive to the guilt of my sins, and also bound by the power of sin, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. Apart from Christ, I am also utterly deserving of and destined for eternal punishment in the lake of fire, completely unable to save myself or even to make one iota of a contribution to my own salvation. That's who God is. That's who we are. I wonder if you could think of anyone You don't want to admit this. You don't especially want to admit this in church. But somebody who really makes your blood boil, you just really can't stand. It's interesting that you prayed earlier for governors and those in authority were commanded to do so. I've been feeling that way recently about Josh Shapiro who is the governor of the state of Pennsylvania. I went to school with Josh Shapiro. He's a few years older than me, but we were in school together, same Jewish education. And, and, and a while back, early May, I think it was, I was watching, I was seeing this commercial on TV where Josh Shapiro was warning people about these terrible people i'm paraphrasing now but i forget he was stumping for some candidate i don't even remember who it was it wasn't a senator i don't know if it was i don't remember what office it was but he was he was warning the audience about the terrible threat that there was in our country to uh, women's health and reproductive rights and we needed to vote for this candidate who would make sure that those rights were protected and I, 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 I always feel compelled to say, whenever we touch on the issue of abortion, that if you're here and you have had an abortion, and there are people here who have had abortions, if you're here if you've had an abortion or you've advocated for abortion, we don't hate you. We're not angry at you. There's abundant grace of God for you. But it, it, it outrages me, and I know it outrages many of us, if not all of us, who are here when someone, a man who is put in a position of authority to be a representative we understand god's design for government is that he is that governors are to advocate for the righteousness of god righteous laws of god and here is a man a governor of the state of pennsylvania using deceptive language lying to people talking about something when he's really advocating for something outrageously evil and unjust which is the desecration of and the murder of precious unborn lives and i was angry maybe some degree of righteous anger. I'm not even going to worry about that right now. We could talk about that. But what struck me is that if that's how I could feel about another, pa- another man's sin, me, if I could feel that way, foolish that I am, unthankful man that I am, slow to embrace the promises of God that I am, so easily given to pouting and fretting over the smallest inconvenience of my life if that's how I can be in thinking about another man's sin how must God who is perfectly pure and devoted to his own honor and glory absolutely righteous and holy and just in all of his ways how must he look at us when he sees our sins slaves to sin that we are, captives to the devil, destined for wrath, enemies of God, hostile to him, utterly dead in our trespasses and sin, the scripture says, with no legitimate defense for having scorned his good and wise rule to live our own way Engaging in a lifelong effort to erase him from existence and insert ourselves upon the throne of our own universe. How must he regard us? What judgment and vengeance he must have stored up if I could be full of rage towards another man's sin? And that's our predicament before God. But, wonder of wonders, the gospel declares good news for hell-deserving rebels against God's loving, benevolent, righteous rule. And that good news is this, Christ died for our sins. This, this has been the message of scripture. It was according to the scriptures. All the scriptures had borne witness to the coming of this Christ, even from the very first sin in the Garden of Eden when God promised Eve that one of her offspring would come and crush the head of the serpent, and the promise to Abraham that God made that there would be offspring that he would have that would bring blessing to all the nations of the earth, and that that Uh, sacrifice being foreshadowed in the Passover lamb when, when God's judgment passed over the people of Israel because they had smeared the blood of the lamb on their doorposts and when it when it was promised that a son of david would come to to rule in a righteous kingdom forever and ever and and isaiah spoke of a suffering servant who would bear the iniquities of his people and as we uh, heard read as matt read was from ezekiel 36 this promise of a a new covenant and sprinkling of water that we would be cleansed and given a new heart and a new spirit all these promises were pointing to this one christ who would come, and in the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the anointed one, the one who himself eternally existed as the image of the invisible God, the one who is the radiance of the eternal glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, upholding the universe with the word of his power, that Lord Jesus freely and willingly came from heaven to earth. And he took on our human flesh and our frailty, never once grumbling or sinning against God. And though he could have chosen immortal glory, he chose a cross. He chose to be nailed to a piece of wood by beings whom he had created and who even at that very moment he was still upholding by his almighty word. On that cross, he took the sins of every one of his people who would ever turn to him and trust in him. And it was on that cross that the wrath of God fell upon him. That, that divine, perfectly just and pure rage against all of the sins of all God's people for all time. On the cross, all that wrath, all that anger fell upon Jesus. Though he had committed no sin... So that we need not bear the wrath of God our lives for, for our own eternal lives. And on the third day, God raised him from the dead, thereby announcing that his death was completely sufficient to atone for every sin that I have or will commit throughout my lifetime. And God exalted Christ then to his own right hand, where he now reigns from on high, granting salvation and forgiveness to all who call on him by faith. Oh, the gospel is so good. Christ died for our sins. When Christ died for our sins, when we put our trust in Christ and we're united to Jesus, And all that judgment of of God is passed over us because Jesus put it on us. We don't just get the removal of wrath. We get, oh, so many benefits from God. All of our sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven. We're declared innocent of our sins, and we're pronounced righteous in God's courtroom with the very righteousness of Christ. His future and present wrath completely satisfied against us because jesus bore it upon himself on the cross so that now god has for those who have believed upon his christ god has only love and compassion and deepest affection with no mixture of wrath whatsoever we've been made god's children adopted into his family we've been given the gift of the holy spirit who gives us god's power who pours out God's love within our hearts and who tenderly communicates to our spirits that we are children of God. We're not only freed from the penalty of sin, but we're actually freed from slavery to sin because we no longer need to sin again because sin's dominion over us has been broken at the cross. We can be assured because of Jesus that God always looks upon and treats us with gracious favor, always working all things together for our ultimate and eternal good. His grace abounds to us even through trials, even in hardships because we are his children. He subjugates every trial and forces it to do good to us and uses those trials to fit us that we might better share eternally in Christ's glory. And all that glory will be consummated once for all at Jesus' glorious appearing. Because he died for our sins and he rose for our justification. He ascended to heaven and we can be confident that he will come again. It is our blessed hope when he comes to make all things new and to uh, judge the world in righteousness and to free this creation from all its bondage to corruption and to satisfy his people with eternal and indestructible joy in his presence. Oh, we do not deserve any of that, even on our best day. But that's our salvation. And herein we stand. Thank you, Jesus. The gospel is the good news of salvation in the crucified and risen Christ. Do you know that message? If you're here this morning and you have not embraced that message, why not? What is is standing in your way today of receiving this Christ, of confessing yourself to be a bankrupt sinner Who has offended a holy beautiful god who has given you life and breath and everything what stops you today from confessing your sins to him and receiving the gracious pardon and all the extraordinary benefits that come from knowing jesus turn from your sin turn from living your own way and receive christ's mercy and forgiveness today if, if I can be of help to you in talking to you more, explaining to you more, if anyone here could help you, it's a, it's a lot to digest in 15 or 20 minutes. If we can help you, we want to explain that to you more, but understand the call on you today is to turn from living your own way and receive this all-glorious Christ. And brothers and sisters, for those of you here who have embraced that message, you have received it, can you, can you articulate that message? And I'm gonna to have to say this with a little bit of humor. Can you articulate that message concisely and clearly? They say, you did not just convey it concisely, my friend. <laughs> I know, I know. But listen, I can make it more concise. Here's, you wanna know about how you want to know how to answer these people's questions. You can say it your own. There are different ways to say it. It's not just one cookie-cutter way to say it. You gotta say it in a biblical way, but. You've got to remember four things when you want to talk about what is this message. What do we believe? God is the righteous, holy, good creator of all. We have offense. Two, we, man, have sinned against God to go our own way, and we have rebelled against him, and thus we deserve his judgment. Three, but God in his great love and mercy sent his son to live the life that we failed to, to die on the cross for our sins, and he guaranteed it and showed that it was done by rising triumphantly from the dead. And number four, we are called to respond to that salvation, that wonderful good news with repentance and faith. That means turning away, repentance means turning away from uh, from our sin to receive Jesus. God, man, Christ, response. We must know that. We must, you, we must prick us and let that bleed out of us. Get this. If you don't know it, you say, I, I know that. That is my, what you just shared. That is my whole hope. I love it. But I can't say it like that. All I did was basically verbatim give you this booklet. I... I does it sound like I'm exalting this man in this booklet? I I don't mean to be. It's a short summary of the message of first importance. Master this message. Master. Give yourself in the next six months to mastering this message. Why? (laughs) Because it's the matter of first importance. Okay, question number two, it will be shorter. How important is the gospel? I mean, it just answer the question, right? If to believe all that is to know, it's of first importance. I'm losing my voice again. That hasn't happened in a while. We'll see if I have another 10 minutes in me. How important is the gospel? It's the most important matter in your life every single day. For the rest of your life. <clears throat> Sports fans... You, you may be familiar with something called the Curse of William Penn. Do you know what that is, sports fans? Philadelphia sports fans? Nobody? Somebody, yeah, some people know about that. <laughs> um, on May 13th, 1985, construction officially started on a building called One Liberty Place. Big skyscraper in the city. That building, along with its counterpart Two Liberty Place, were soon to be the tallest locations in the city of Philadelphia. And that officially, the building of those two buildings, officially broke what was a quote-unquote gentleman's agreement that noted that no one should build in the city taller than City Hall, with the highest point of of the building, City Hall, being a statue of the city's founder, William Penn. But they broke that gentleman's agreement. And they did build. And that plunged Philadelphia sports fans would know. That plunged the city of Philadelphia into a 20 plus year abyss of sports failure. That was broken only in 2008 when 15 months after the final beam in what was to become the the new tallest building in the city, the Comcast Center, when the last beam was put in, they put a little small figurine of William Penn up there. And 15 months later, the Phillies won the World Series. Well, isn't that wonderful? Okay, now that's really trivial, and you all laughed, and I expected that you might. But understand this. God has established something. It's no gentleman's agreement. God does not need to enter into any gentleman's agreement with us. He, he has created a holy and heavenly ordinance that nothing should be built higher in the hearts of God's people, in the life of his church, than the gospel. Let, let no priority. And we've got priorities. We want to pray. We want to send out laborers to the harvest field. We want to make disciples. Lots of things we could say. So study the Bible. We want to learn Bible fluency. We've got Sunday school. We've got lots of things to do. People to evangelize. Let nothing eclipse. Let nothing be built higher in the hearts and lives of God's people than this gospel skyscraper. It's not just the message that we received at one point in time. It's the message in which we stand right now. It's what upholds us and sustains us and strengthens us as we seek to live a life that reflects the surpassing worth of Jesus and his grace. And, and you know, I could click here and we could spend a couple of hours We're not going to. Relax. I know it's been a while since I've been up here, but I'm starting to lose my voice. I might have done it, but I don't have much left in it. We could spend some hours showing you all the ways that Paul and Peter and James and John, how they motivate God's people to give themselves to obeying the Lord by reminding them regularly of, of what God has done for them in Christ. We could spend hours and hours doing that. But I just want you to see actually this priority in the life of the Apostle Paul. Paul never got over this miraculous wonder of his own salvation from sin and damnation to to be transferred from a vile, hated enemy of God into a beloved child of God and a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul never got over that. Beyond the importance for our church in being able to be clear about the gospel, this is what has moved me so much, is that I have seen ways that even in doing gospel ministry, I have lost sight of the wonder of what it means to be saved. That is something that God has wanted to remind me of during this time away. I'm saved. That's amazing. If you're here this morning and you're saved... You may have a lot of stuff going wrong in your life that's why I love that passage in Habakkuk chapter three by the way this is not in my notes you want to know how great salvation is this prophet Habakkuk not even knowing the fullness of the salvation that was coming in Jesus but just knowing the God of Israel and the salvation of the exodus and his promises he said though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vine. The produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food. Though the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. You know what all that means? Though everything is horrible around me. Though I have no earthly good to rejoice in. He said, nevertheless, yet I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. That's how great salvation is. And I've lost sight of that. I'm not saying I wasn't a believer. I've just lost sight of the wonder of it. Paul never lost sight of that. About 25 or 30 years after he got struck off that horse on the road to Damascus. Right? We're going to get back, Lord willing, in September. We'll be back in the book of Acts, and that's where we're picking up, I believe. We're about to see this man, Paul, breathing out murderous threats against the church as he was back in chapter 8. We're going to see him converted in chapter 9. And made an ambassador and servant of the Lord Jesus. About 25 or 30 years after that happened to Paul, he wrote a letter to his young disciple Timothy, and in that letter he said this I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy. This is 25 or 30 years later. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, he said, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And then he just bursts out in praise to God, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He never got over that. He he had, even 25, 30 years later, he had such a deep acquaintance with how crooked he was, with how vile he was because of his sin and how amazing it was that when God had every right to overflow him with a flood of vengeance and anger, he stayed the hand of his wrath and he put it upon Jesus so that Paul might know overflowing, overwhelming grace, grace that is greater than all our sins. He never got over that. And we can get over it. We should never get over it, but we can just lose sight of it. We can get so familiar with that message, Christ died for our sins, that it ceases to dazzle our souls with awe-filled wonder. We could become like that lady Lisa. I didn't tell you her name. At the gas station in Parker's, pulling out. We can be like her, pulling out. (laughs) Oh, you must not be from around here thinking that that spectacular thing that you just saw it was spectacular. We've gotten used to all that around here. You must not be from around here. She wasn't being condescending. And my dear wife, I can't get into this story, she shared the gospel with that woman and that's a whole other story. Because it's first importance. We've got to get it out to people. But we don't want to be like Lisa. <laughs> this gospel airplane flying over our heads. Christ died for our sins. We're saved. We're no longer under God's wrath. We're his children. We're headed towards eternal glory. We don't want to become so accustomed to that, that it ceases to thrill us. And so it's, I'm freshly resolved that I would not lose sight of that wonder. And I hope that you will happily and worshipfully join me in that resolve, never to let this gospel message become old hat. Never let it become familiar. As long as God gives breath in our lungs, might we sing. We pick these songs out ahead of time. If I was picking the last song this morning, it would be, I'm not going to sing it. I wouldn't sing it anyway. I know you don't like when I sing, but I think but I like when I sing, okay? I, I shouldn't have pointed at you. I love you, man. I'm happy you're here. But if we were picking one, you could sing it this afternoon. Sing it after the service. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene, and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my soul shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Do you know that's the theme of heaven's praises right now? Revelation 5, we sang earlier about an everlasting song. They sang a new song. This is Revelation 5. Worthy are you to take the scroll. They're talking to Jesus. They're singing to Jesus. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And then then John looked around and he heard around the throne the, the elders and many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands and thousands saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain. To receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature, he said, in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Not to the Son of God, though he is that. Not to the Christ, though he is that. Not to the Son of man, though he is that. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, because his glory is eternally bound in the laying down of his life as an atoning sacrifice for sinners. Worthy to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And if it is thrilling the redeemed and glorified saints in heaven, even right now, we have not exhausted its treasures down here on earth, beloved. So let us hold high this good news of the gospel as the message of first importance and may nothing else eclipse it in its majestic grandeur in your own soul, in your family, and in this dear church, which he has called us to be a part of. Love you, brothers and sisters. Thanks for listening. I hope that was simple and clear. The gospel is of first importance. Heavenly Father, we ask for your grace and blessing upon us that, we would, that that you would take us deeper and deeper into the riches and the wonder and the glory of this salvation that you have provided for us in Jesus. Even those among us here who've walked with you, who've embraced that message 50 years, 60 years, 70 years, some people in this room have embraced this good news. Oh, we've only begun to see the first fruits of it. We have just scarcely been able to conceive of what Paul says are those unsearchable riches that are found in Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we do pray that you would help us. Help us to grow in our love for the gospel, in our devotion to the gospel. May we be repeating it regularly to our own souls, preaching it to our own souls, reminding each other of it, spreading it regularly to those around us, our neighbors, our coworkers, all that you would send us to, And may we not forget those to the ends of the earth, some who've never even heard the sweet name of Jesus. And our souls long for them to hear this good news too. Would you help us to labor in the strength that you would supply to be devoted to this wonderful good news as the message of first importance. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.